Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Father, what glorious truths that we have just sung and heard read. That Christ is risen. He, he is alive today, seated at your right hand. That it was finished upon the cross. Sin has been paid for. Death has been defeated. And Jesus is reigning as Lord and King of all. And so we worship you this morning. We declare the power of the cross. We declare the love of God displayed, the justifying work of God through the empty tomb. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he is alive today. And so we worship you this morning. And now, Father, we come to your word, and we ask, Lord, I pray that you would take this weak effort of mine to bear witness to the risen Christ, and you would work in such a way that the blind would see, and that dead hearts would be made alive, and that faith would be stirred, your people would worship you, and that you would receive all the glory and honor this morning. So would you do that for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have a Bible this morning, let me ask you to take it and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. Our attention will be devoted to verses 38 to 42, Matthew chapter 12. Now I know that some of you are thinking, I thought we began last week a study of the book of Jonah. So why are we then in Matthew? Well, in a way, we are continuing our study of Jonah, although we won't be in the book of Jonah this morning. Because this week, as you know, is Easter Sunday. And as I was planning this series several weeks ago, I thought, Oh no, I'm going to be in Jonah on Easter Sunday. How is that supposed to work, right? It's Easter. But in the providence of God, this is a perfect Sunday to be in a study of Jonah. Because the Lord led me to this passage here in Matthew chapter 12. And what I want you to see this morning, church, is that the book of Jonah is, in fact, connected to Easter Sunday. They are tied together, not by me, but by Jesus himself. 
that the story of Jonah is connected to the story of Easter. And that's what we discover here in Matthew chapter 12. The word Easter, it comes from an old English word that means to rise. And that's what we're celebrating here this morning. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That he died, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. And beloved, this is the foundation of Christianity. This is the bedrock of your faith. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In his book, author Josh McDowell, in his book, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Christian apologist, he tells the story of a student that approached him asking him why he believed that Christianity was true. And McDowell, he said, I answered him very simply because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection. McDowell, he then goes on in this book to write this. He says, after years and years of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I came to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked and elaborate hoaxes ever conceived, or it is the most important fact in history. In other words, it's either the greatest lie or it's the greatest fact in history. And then McDowell, he goes on in this book to present the historical and biblical evidence for the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. Now, I think you would agree with me that it's a resurrection is pretty easy to disprove, right? It's pretty easy to disprove because all you have to do is go to the tomb and produce a body and the religion ends immediately, which tells me, I don't know if it tells you, that the tomb must have been empty. Otherwise, Christianity would have died right there. And McDowell, as he walks through the, the logic of that, we must then come up with some explanation as to why it was empty. What, what could have happened to the body of Christ? And of course, as you know, many options are put forward. There's the swoon theory, which states that Jesus, he wasn't really dead. He just fainted. He just swooned on the cross which is absolutely ridiculous if you know anything at all about crucifixion in the first century Roman world. And then, of course, another theory is that the disciples came and stole the body. But then they died as martyrs for what they knew as a lie. People don't die for what they know as a lie. They die for what they know to be true or believe to be true. And so then the only logical explanation then is that the body was raised. And so I just wonder if you have ever worked through these arguments logically, apologetically, historically, that would be a very good exercise for you. It would serve to strengthen your faith and bolster your faith and help you even defend your faith. But Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, despite all of those arguments out there, there is actually something else 
that is the greatest evidence of the resurrection. There's something even greater. And the strongest evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is found right here in the scripture. Scripture text after scripture text testifying to the truth of the resurrection. This is the greatest sign. This is the greatest proof. And this must be the solid foundation of your faith. Where you and I, we come to the place where we accept from the scriptures, from the testimony of the Bible, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And we repent and we believe. That must be the foundation of your faith, the testimony of the scriptures. And listen, that is enough to save your soul. So I wonder, is that enough for you? Is that enough evidence for you? That the scriptures recorded for us right here testify to the truth that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. Is that enough for you? And here in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 12, that's exactly what Jesus says. He gives us the greatest sign, the greatest proof that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, that he's everything he's said to be. And he calls it the sign of Jonah. Now last week we began this study of the book of Jonah. We looked at chapter 1 and where we left Jonah last week was in the belly of the fish. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17, we read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And if you remember last week, I told you that the story of Jonah is really a pointer to Christ. That Jonah points to Christ. He is a, he is a type of Christ. He is a shadow that is pointing to the reality. And here in Matthew chapter 12, we see that. We see that here because Jesus, he makes a comparison here. He links together the experience of Jonah being three days and three nights in the fish and his own experience of resurrection from the dead. But he also makes a contrast between the Ninevites' response to Jonah and the response of the Jews to Jesus himself. And he tells them and he tells us that the only sign, the only proof we get is the sign of Jonah. Let's see it together. Matthew chapter 12, if you have your place there, would you stand with me this morning out of honor for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 38, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. The context of our passage here in Matthew chapter 12 is one of confrontation and attack. Here Jesus, he is experiencing several attacks from Israel's religious leaders. That's, that seems to be the unifying theme here of chapter 12. For example, notice back chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. We read that at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So they're attacking him on what he does on the Sabbath. Or look down in verse 14 of chapter 12. After Jesus, he does this amazing miracle on the Sabbath of healing this man with a withered hand. We read in verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They are plotting, they are scheming in unbelief. They want him dead. Or look down in verse 24, again, after Jesus, he does this astonishing miracle of driving out a demon from a man who is blind and mute, and everyone is saying, in verse 23, can this be the son of David? They're amazed at this miracle, but verse 24 When the Pharisees heard about this, they said, well, then it must be in the power of Satan. Verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out a demon. This isn't God, they say. No, it is by the power of the devil himself that Jesus is driving out these demons. They are attacking him. To which Jesus will then teach them about the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin in verses 31 and 32. And then, notice here now, verse 38, we see yet another confrontation. Where they're asking Jesus for a sign. So the whole atmosphere here of chapter 12 then is one of confrontation and questioning and attacks and skepticism about Jesus, and really it's unbelief. Even though they have seen all of these incredible signs, all of these incredible miracles, still they refuse to believe that he is the Messiah, and they want more proof. They want more evidence. Now there's a difference between not having enough evidence to make a decision and just ignoring the clear evidence that's right in front of you, right? Sort of like the defendant who is on trial. They're having a preliminary hearing, and the evidence is brought suggesting this man's guilt, and he maintains his innocence. And then finally, the prosecution in this preliminary hearing brings a photograph because there had been a camera in the jewelry store showing this man's hand in the broken cabinet stealing the jewels. And the judge turns to the defendant and says, do you want to change your plea? And the defendant says, no, your honor. 
And the judge asks, why not? And the defendant turns and says, are you going to believe me or your own eyes? That's exactly what's going on here. So I want you to see three things from Jesus' interaction here with these religious leaders that has a lot to teach us about the Easter story and about the truth of the resurrection. First, we're going to see the sign demanded in verses 38 and 39. Second, the sign given, verses 39 and 40. And then finally, the warning for those who reject this sign, verses 41 and 42. First, just notice with me the sign demanded, verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, notice here again, these religious leaders, they come to Jesus with a demand. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want to see a miraculous sign. We want more evidence. We want more proof. Now, wanting miraculous signs isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, Scripture, in the Scripture, God often gives His people a sign to help them in their faith. For example, if you remember in Exodus chapter 4, remember Moses is given two signs by God to give Pharaoh in order to prove that the Lord had sent him. And so the first sign, if you remember, was Moses' staff would turn into a serpent. He'd throw it down and it'd turn into a serpent, right? It was a sign. The second one, Moses would put his hand in his cloak and then he would take it out and it would leprous. He would have leprosy. And then he would put it back in and he would take it out again and it was clean. It was a sign to prove God had sent him. And in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 8, the Lord says, if they will not believe you, God says, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So miraculous signs are given as proof. I think this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that Jews demand signs. They want to see signs because we see again and again throughout the Old Testament, God gives them signs. Judges chapter 6, Gideon asks for a sign that God's favor was with them. In Joshua chapter 10, the Lord causes the sun to stand still in the sky as a sign that he indeed is fighting for Israel. So God would often give supernatural signs as proof. And so in verse 38, the Pharisees and the scribes say, Jesus, we want to see a miraculous sign. So why then is Jesus so harsh with them for asking for a sign? Verse 39, look there, he's going to call them an evil and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. Why? Well, because their request here is really a non-request. They're not really wanting it. They aren't really wanting a sign. They aren't really wanting proof. No, this, this isn't genuine interest. This isn't faith-seeking understanding on the part of these religious leaders. No. 
fact, in verse 38, notice their approach to Jesus here is really sarcastic and hypocritical. Verse 38, notice they call him teacher. It's only to flatter him. It's all fake. It isn't real honor. It isn't real interest on their part, no. Later, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, we read, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's what they're trying to do here. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, there it is, just hear it, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. It's all fake. So verse 38, this is merely a deceitful trick to try and trap him. Of course, Jesus, he isn't fooled for one second by this. And so in verse 38, notice, they demand a sign. And this, this in fact proves that their request here isn't genuine. Why? Because they've already seen the signs. Jesus has been doing one miracle after another. And now they come and say, we want to see a sign. Oh, do you mean like another sign? Like, like more signs? How about the several signs I've just done? They've seen them all. Like in John chapter 6, remember Jesus, he's just fed 5,000 men, including women and children, with a few loaves and fish. I mean, this amazing miracle. And the very next day, they come and ask him for a sign. And in verse 30, after witnessing this, Jesus, it says, or John says, so they asked him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? I just gave you a sign. So apparently, they had discounted all of the miracles, all of the signs, all of the healings, which, by the way, was the very purpose of them. It was to testify to the proof and truth of who he was, but these signs, they weren't enough. No, they wanted more. When the evidence has already, already been presented to them, it had been seen in his words, it had been seen in his deeds, it had been seen in his person, but still they wanted more. Matthew chapter 16, again, they will demand a sign. Verse 1, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. What could this be? I don't know. Jesus, make the sun explode and put it back together. Turn it purple. Write, write your name in the sky. Do something only God can do. And all of these miracles, all of these healings, they weren't enough. They still wanted more. You know anybody like this? Maybe this is you. You find this often in talking with unbelievers and skeptics. 
they don't want to believe. I mean, you, you can throw out, they throw out all these objections, objections to the existence of God, objections to the possibility of miracles or who Jesus was, objections to this, objections to that. And even when you walk through all of those objections, they still don't believe. Why? Because they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe. I once heard a pastor say one time, this is someone who's, who's very skilled in personal evangelism and apologetics. He said that, that a couple of questions that he asks early on in a conversation with an unbeliever or a skeptic, a couple of questions he says, number one, he asks them, do you want there to be a God? And then number two, if these are the claims of Jesus, do you want them to be true? And he said, it's crazy how the vast majority of the time, whatever their answers are to those questions, that's how the evangelistic conversation would go. Why? Because, often is the case, they don't want to believe it. Verse 39, look there. Instead of these religious leaders exposing Jesus as some kind of fraud here, he exposes them. Look at verse 39. But, but, so verse 38, they ask for a sign. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Notice first, he refers to them as Notice this generation, see that? An evil and adulterous generation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, some think he could, he could be referring here to the Jewish race as a whole. Although I, I don't think that's entirely what he has in mind here. No, this generation, which actually is a phrase that re is repeated about five times in Matthew's gospel, this generation, I think it simply means his contemporaries. Meaning, this generation that is alive at this time, those who had seen him, those who had witnessed his miracles, all, all of the signs that he had shown them testifying to who he was. That's, that's this generation he's talking about. But second, notice he calls them an evil, it's a harsh word, or wicked evil and adulterous generation, which is really just an Old Testament way of describing Israel's rebellion against God. They had acted wickedly in unbelief. They had, they had committed spiritual adultery because of their lack of faith and their constant idolatry. And Jesus, he refers to this generation, his current generation, as evil and adulterous because they have seen and have rejected him. They have failed to believe all the signs that were meant to testify to who he is. Friends, before we go pointing fingers at these scribes and Pharisees, lest we forget we too were once blind in unbelief. This was all of us. 
Romans chapter 3, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one understands. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan, the God of this world, he has blinded our minds. He has blinded us to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so sin has so blinded us. Sin has so ravaged every faculty of our being, including our minds and our hearts, that we don't have the ability to see and believe apart from the Spirit overcoming that unbelief. And so, friend, if you have eyes to see Jesus this morning, if you have a heart that believes and trusts in Him, it is only the grace of God in your life. God has graciously allowed you to see something that you could never see before. He's given you eyes to see. And when you see it, it becomes so clear. You see, the problem with these guys, it wasn't an evidence problem. What's the problem? It's a heart problem. It doesn't matter. It's a heart problem. It doesn't matter that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most historically reliable events in history. It doesn't matter that the New Testament is the most, the most accurate, historically, and reliable document of antiquity. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the problem isn't the evidence. The problem is the hardness of the human heart. And this is a reminder to all of us, to all those who are obstinate in unbelief, who are hard-hearted, they will always come up with another reason not to believe, no matter the evidence. The hardness of the heart. And so verse 38, look there, they demand a sign. But verse 39, Jesus says, no sign will be given. He's not going to be their puppet. No. And yet, verse 39, he doesn't leave them without a sign. <laughs> he doesn't leave them with nothing. So verse 39, I'm not going to give you a sign, but I am going to give you enough. Enough to believe. What's the sign? Point number two, second, the sign given. Verse 39b, verse 40. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, no sign will be given, but I will give you one sign. I'm going to give you one sign. So he doesn't leave them with nothing. And friends, this sign is the final sign. It is the last sign. There is not going to be another sign after this one. Not just for this generation, for every generation. The entire world. So what is the sign? Verse 39, no sign will be given except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's it. That's the sign. He'll say the same thing in chapter 16, verse 4. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. 
So what's the sign of Jonah? Well, you remember the story. If you were here last week with us, if you weren't, it's okay. Let me catch you up. We saw that Jonah was an Israelite prophet. He was called to preach repentance to pagan Nineveh, Israel's greatest enemy, these wicked Assyrians. But Jonah didn't want to go. He, he didn't want them to get grace and mercy from God. And so he set sail to Tarshish and he went in the opposite direction from Nineveh. But while on board, God appointed a great storm, so great, in fact, that these sailors were terrified, and the ship is about to sink, and so they cast lots, and it falls on Jonah, and Jonah is then thrown into the sea, and the storm ceases immediately. But in chapter 1, verse 17, the text tells us at that very moment, a great fish comes and swallows him up. Then in chapter 2 and verse 10, we'll see after three days and three nights, the fish spits him up on the shores of Nineveh. And in chapter 3, Jonah goes into the city and he preaches repentance after this great deliverance, really from death. And amazingly, the people of Nineveh repent and believe. So then what is the sign of Jonah? What, What does Jesus mean here? And I think we see here from From this text here in Matthew chapter 12, three parts to the sign of Jonah. Three parts to the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Let me just say very simply up front what I think the sign of Jonah is. Here it is. The proclamation of the gospel supported by a resurrection. The proclamation of the gospel supported by a resurrection. That's the sign of Jonah. In fact, we see three parts to this sign here. First, notice, the sign of Jonah is the empty tomb on the third day. The sign of Jonah is the empty tomb on the third day, the resurrection on the third day. Verse 40, notice, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah for... Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what's the sign? It's the empty tomb on the third day. So verse 40, Jesus points to Jonah. And in pointing to Jonah, he is saying... Look, if you would simply believe the Old Testament scriptures, then you would know for certain that the Messiah will be three days and three nights in the grave. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Meaning that the Old Testament scriptures testify to my third day resurrection. So verse 40 Just as he was three days and three nights in the fish, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the grave. The heart of the earth. Meaning, you guys, you should have connected the dots. You should have seen this coming. Now where, think about this, where does the Old Testament ever explicitly testify to a third day resurrection? Right? Have you ever wondered that? 
Where does the Old Testament ever explicitly predict that the Messiah is going to rise from the dead after three days and three nights? Does it? And the answer is, it doesn't. Not exactly. Not exactly. It isn't a prediction, but it is a pattern. It isn't a prediction that he'll rise on the third day, but it is a pattern. In fact, on multiple occasions, Jesus clarifies that his resurrection would be on the third day. For example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus says that his own resurrection must happen when? On the third day. Not the first day, not the fourth day, not the 15th day, the third day. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. His death was according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So even Paul says his resurrection on the third day is according to the Scriptures. It's in the Scriptures. Risen on the third day. So where do we see this third day resurrection in the scriptures? The pattern of deliverance on the third day is everywhere. Genesis chapter 22, Isaac was delivered from being sacrificed on the third day. Genesis chapter 42, Joseph released his brothers on the third day. Exodus chapter 19, God came down to meet with Moses on the third day. Joshua chapter 1, the conquest into the promised land, it would happen on the third day. In Esther chapter 4, Esther successfully intercedes for the Jews on the third day. The prophet Hosea says, after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up. This pattern of a third day deliverance is everywhere in the scripture. And in verse 40, Jesus says, it is seen most clearly in Jonah. So in the same way that Jonah was swallowed up near death for three days in the belly of the fish, so Jesus is swallowed up for three days in the grave. And just as Jonah was miraculously delivered from the fish on the third day, so too Jesus is miraculously resurrected from the dead on the third day. This is the sign of Jonah. It's all there. Now some people get really tripped up here on this three days and three nights thing. Because Jesus died on a Friday, Good Friday, And he was raised on Easter Sunday, right? And so he was really only in the grave about 36 hours. It was an error in the Bible. No. No. You you have to remember that in the Jewish way of thinking, any part, any portion of a day is called a day and a night. 
And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you go to a rental car company, it makes sense. <laughs> you, you ever been an hour late on returning a rental car? You get charged for the whole day. My wife and I, we were in Nashville earlier this week. We were in a parking garage, and you could park for five hours, and then right at that five-hour mark, you then paid for 24 hours if you didn't get out of the parking garage, right? And so we're booking it back, right? We've been in there. We don't want to get charged for a whole day. Now, the fact of the matter is that Jesus links his bodily, physical resurrection to what happened to Jonah. And Jesus is saying, my death, my resurrection on the third day testified in the scriptures that is the sign of Jonah. It's the empty tomb. But that's not all the sign of Jonah means. Second, the sign of Jonah is not only the empty tomb, the sign of Jonah is the eyewitnesses who proclaimed it. The eyewitnesses who proclaimed it. Look at verse 41. Look what Jesus says. It isn't just the resurrection. It isn't just the empty tomb. Because verse 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So it isn't just the resurrection. It is also the proclamation of the apostles, the eyewitnesses who saw him raised from the dead. The people of Nineveh not only got a delivered prophet, they got a proclaimed message. And that that is the sign that the Jews received as well. Because in Acts chapter 2, remember Acts chapter 2, Peter, he's preaching at Pentecost, proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Christ. Here's what we read, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. This Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then in verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. We saw him. We touched him. He is alive. He is risen. And this we proclaim to you. And that's all they got. And my friends, that's all we get as well. A proclaimed message with an empty tomb. And so I wonder, is that enough for you? The preaching of the gospel from the scriptures, supported by a resurrection, this is the sign of Jonah. But there's one more part to this sign. Again, look at verse 41. The sign of Jonah, third, is a response of repentance and faith. How should we respond to the preaching of the resurrection? We'll look at verse 41. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up at, this, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the sign of Jonah. What is the only proper response to this proclamation of the cross and empty tomb? Repent. Repent. Just like the Ninevites. Repent. Friend, having heard this, you must repent and believe. You must accept the gospel as true and turn from your sins. You must repent. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2, remember? After Peter had finished preaching the cross in the empty tomb, what, what then was the application of all of this? Well, it's the same as Jonah when he preached at Nineveh. Repent! Repent! Verse 37, Acts chapter 2, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent! That's how the sign of Jonah works. Physical evidence of a resurrection proclaimed by these apostles, recorded now for us in the scriptures, and then preached with a single application. Repent. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And friend, that must be your response as well. Repent. And beloved, it all hinges on the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, if Jesus never came out of the grave, then we have nothing to offer the world. We have no gospel at all. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If you remove the resurrection, you have nothing. No, this is the sign of all signs. It's the last sign. It's the final sign, the sign of Jonah. And Jesus is asking them, and he's asking us, what greater sign can I give you? What, what greater evidence can I give you that a dead man came out of the grave? In fact, in verses 41 and 42, finally, he turns and gives them a warning. A warning if they reject this sign. Third and finally, notice the warning for those who reject it. Reject the sign of Jonah. Look at verses 41 and 42. Jesus, he gives a warning after they have rejected him and this sign. And so there's a, a warning. What's the warning? Here's the warning. It's judgment. It's eternal condemnation in hell. Separation from God for those who reject this sign. And he gives them this warning by giving them two Old Testament examples. First, the men of Nineveh, verse 41. And then second, the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, in verse 42. Look at these warning, this warning here with me. First, just example number one, the men of Nineveh. Verse 41, notice Jesus, he's just been making a comparison between himself and Jonah, and now he makes a contrast. He makes a contrast between his audience and the people of Nineveh. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment on the last day 
with this generation who've rejected Jesus and condemn it, for they, the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So verse 41, Jesus says, even these pagan, wicked, Gentile Ninevites repented at much less. They repented at the preaching of this fish-smelling wayward prophet. And I am the incarnate Son of God, testifying to you with all of these signs and all of these wonders who was crucified and will be raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said, and you still won't repent. But verse 41, something greater is here. A greater sign, a greater message, a greater prophet, a greater salvation. Jonah was spit out of a fish. Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, those who reject him and his message will receive an even greater condemnation. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Friends, something greater, someone greater is here. That's the first example. Notice the second example. Example number two, the queen of the south, verse 42. Queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, who is the queen of the south? Well, no doubt, this is the queen of Sheba. 1 Kings chapter 10. Why does Jesus bring up the queen of Sheba and Solomon? Doesn't that seem kind of out of left field? Well, I think it's because Jesus, speaking here to Jews who have rejected him, is showing us yet another incredible response from a Gentile. From the ends of the earth. 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn the queen of Sheba, she travels over 1,200 miles across burning sand and desert. This very wealthy, very pagan, very Gentile queen because she's heard of the reputation of this king in Israel. Who's full of wisdom and she hungers for the truth. And she comes to King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived in order to gain wisdom, and there was nothing Solomon couldn't answer. And in verse 41, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. Yes, Solomon had great wealth, but Jesus has eternal riches. Yes, Solomon had great wisdom, but Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. Something greater than Solomon is here. No, the fact of the matter is that this generation would get the sign of Jonah, and they wouldn't repent. And so I wonder, is the sign of Jonah enough for you? Because the root issue is that they wouldn't accept the testimony of the Scripture. What about you? Is that enough? What's the application? First, 
For the unbeliever here in the room this morning, what would it take for you to believe? God, send me a sign. My friend, he's given you a sign. Something to let you know for certain. A cross and an empty tomb. But you see, I've come, to, I've come to believe that no matter the sign, if you won't believe it from the Bible, if you won't believe the testimony of the scriptures, you're not going to believe the sign no matter what it is. Jesus, he tells this parable in Luke chapter 16, if you remember, of a rich man and Lazarus. They both die. The poor man, Lazarus, he goes to the bosom of Abraham, he goes to heaven, and the rich man is languishing in hell. And the rich man asks, verse 27, Abraham, he says, send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers so that they don't end up in this place of torment. Send, send Lazarus. And warn them. And Abraham answers in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. The rich man says, that's not enough. No. Send Lazarus back from the dead and then they're going to believe. And Abraham responds. Notice verse 31. He said to them, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither Will they believe? Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Speaking not only of Lazarus, but Jesus, I think, even foretelling here his own resurrection. So, my friends, what will it take for you to believe? Is the testimony of the scripture, are the eyewitness accounts in the gospels, is the empty tomb enough for you? If so, repent and believe. But secondly, for the believer here this morning, all we can do, listen, all we can do is simply preach the sign of Jonah. We preach a cross, we preach an empty tomb, we call people to repent and believe in the gospel, and then we trust that the simple Message of the gospel has the power to save. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Because he's been raised... Friends, we too have this hope that we will be raised. And beloved, it all hinges on the resurrection. What other sign do you need of his power over sin and death, of his power to save and rescue you from hell? What other sign do you need? Humble your heart before him this morning. Repent and believe at the sign of Jonah because something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. We 
trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.